From Yellowstone to the Everglades to the Grand Canyon to the Statue of Liberty, America is home to a great many national parks, monuments, and historic sites. Some of them, like Lady Liberty, right here in New York City. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Starting tomorrow, PBS begins airing Ken Burns' new documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Burns joins us now to talk about the six-part, 12-hour series. Good morning, Ken. Hi, how are you? Good. Your latest documentary series focuses on America's national parks. Why did you want to tell the story of national parks? Well, you know, I've always picked subjects that I think reveal ourselves to ourselves and are mirrors of who we are. And for the first time in human history, land was set aside not for kings or noblemen or the very rich, but for everybody and for all times. The national parks mirrors our larger democratic experiment. They are, in fact, the Declaration of Independence applied to the landscape. So what we've told is not a travelogue or a nature film or even a recommendation of which lodger in to stay at, but rather a history of ideas and individuals that made this uniquely American thing happen. And to our surprise, what we found was an incredibly diverse story of Americans uh, from every walk of life who fell in love with the place and went against the momentum of their fellow citizens who would normally try to dam every river or try to cut down every stand of tree, try to exploit the mineral wealth from every canyon, and said, no, let's save some of these things. So the history of the national parks is really a history of us. The history of the national parks, I believe, represents our best selves. Who are among the most important people in the history of the national parks? Well, they're the familiar characters that most people assume that they've heard of. Theodore Roosevelt, John Muir, the great wilderness prophet, John D. Rockefeller Jr., and his great philanthropy, the first uh, director of the National Park Service, the charismatic Stephen Mather. But this is a story that is not just white and famous and male. It's the story uh, of people who are black and brown and red and yellow and female and unknown, uh, as well as uh, those famous white men. And that's the flabbergasted story, and at the heart of each person's interest in the park is a transformational moment, as intensely personal as anything these people had, as anything the people who we interviewed to help us understand those people, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, each one of us who worked on the film had. Your documentary features a woman by the name of Juanita Green. She's a former Miami Herald reporter. What were her contributions to the national park system? Juanita Green helped us in two extraordinary ways in our film. Uh, The first was to introduce us to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the old Miami Herald Society columnist, who for just unbelievable and unexpected reasons became a champion of the Everglades, this swamp that everyone else wanted drained and covered with tract housing and other forms of sort of development, even though it's one of the most diverse habitats on Earth. She later on became a crusading reporter herself for the Miami Herald, exposing uh, a horrific uh, land deal that was going to develop the last remaining pristine islands off Miami, but which were, thanks to her and others' efforts, saved as Biscayne Bay National Park. So one of those unsung heroes that you were talking about. That's exactly right, and there's the grandson of a slave in that story, too, Lancelot Jones, Sir Lancelot Jones, whose father gave him a great name in hopes that he would become a great man. Everywhere you turn, in every park story, there's ordinary people, Native Americans, a Hispanic uh, biologist, first biologist of the Park Service, George Melendez Wright, that insisted that we take into account wildlife as well as the spectacular scenery when creating and maintaining these national parks. 
Uh, there's Japanese-American uh, citizens, photographers, who showed people the glories of the parks. There are women uh, in a Colorado women's group that helped save Mesa Verde and other treasures. I mean, everywhere you turn, there's an, an interesting story. And this isn't some politically correct exercise on our part. This is a naturally occurring diversity, uh, all underscored, whom, wh- whoever they are, by these powerful transformational moments, whether they're religious or spiritual, artistic, as- ecstatic, aesthetic, rational, whatever you want to call it, each one of these people had something in where the parks rearranged their molecules. They were better persons for it and then dedicated the rest of their lives to setting it aside so the rest of us could enjoy it. It's a, uh, it's a great, great story. I mean, it's why we call the, the film The National Parks America's Best Idea. It represents our best selves. There are 58 parks in the system. Did you visit all of them? Dayton Duncan, the writer and co-producer, did. I was working in parallel on several other projects. I've been to dozens and dozens of them. There are 58 natural national parks out of a park service system that has 391 units, and those units reflect the fact that the idea was never static. Like the idea of liberty, it's grown. We began to save not just spectacular scenery, but archaeological sites, historic sites that reflect our cultural and military and political and social history, also setting aside the symbols of our country, like the Statue of Liberty and the Mount Rushmore and the Washington Monument, but also saving more complicated symbols of a very complicated past, slave cabins at plantations, Manzanar, where Japanese citizens were interned, Little Rock High School, where the crisis of school desegregation crystallized, uh, Shanksville, PA, and Oklahoma City, the site of the greatest act of domestic terrorism. All of these are units of the National Park Service with the idea that a great country can acknowledge a complicated past and be there for greater still. Do you remember the first national park that you ever stepped foot in? I now do. I thought it was Yosemite early on in this production in the spring of of 2003. Uh, I'd been to many of the sites, uh, the battlefield sites, but the first full-fledged national park I thought was Yosemite. And at the end of five days of exhilarating filming, when I should have fallen fast asleep, I found I couldn't fall asleep and then remembered that in 1959, when I was six years old, my mother was dying of cancer. Our household, as you can imagine, was a demoralized place. My father wasn't a very good dad. He never played catch with me, never took me to ball games. But one afternoon after school, inexplicably, he took me for a weekend in Shenandoah National Park. And lying awake there in Yosemite, I could suddenly recall what his hand felt in mine. I could remember the songs that he sang to me that I'd sang to my three daughters as they grew up, forgetting where they'd come from. I remember the route we took and the conversations we had, the fact that he could name every plant and tree and animal, uh, the hike we took. I mean, all of it came back to me. And so I bless Yosemite for giving me back this early memory of Shenandoah National Park in 1959, now more than 50 years ago. Do you think most people have that sort of intimate relationship with the national park system? I think everyone who's gone does. I, I don't know a person who, who has gone who hasn't had that experience, and I think that's what we're trying to tap into. Art, in the form of the paintings of Bierstadt or Moran or others, uh, have been central to uh, convincing Americans to save these parks and to giving them that go, that spur to go off and visit them. And so what I hope is that after this series is broadcast, people change their minds and begin to make new vacation plans. If you haven't seen these spectacular places, you have missed the country. When we sing My Country Tis of Thee, we're not talking about skyscrapers or anything like that. We're talking about the land that we've had the foresight to set aside. What would you say is the one national park every American should visit before they die? 
oh, that's impossible to say. They're all spectacular. The Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone are the the, the big three, but the Smoky Mountains. Uh, we film from the uh, gates of the Arctic in northern Alaska to the dry tortugas off the Florida Keys, from Hawaii Volcano, where they're making new land, to Acadia National Park, where the first rays of sunlight hit the United States of America. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life going to visit national parks, but I think piling the family on when the kids or 10 or 11 or 12 is one of the greatest things you could do. You've said, Ken, that the Great Smoky Mountains are like medicine. What do you mean by that? We not only save these places, they save us. We need these quiet places, these glimpses into a primeval, primordial past because they are soothing to our souls. I mean, this is a glimpse into how things once were, and we now live in these compelling, you know, virtual environments that keep us from having real experience. When you go out and you see Yosemite National Park, when you're in the Smoky Mountains, when you be able to see the enjoy the diversity of that environment, your life are changed. Ken Burns, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Ken Burns' six-part documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, airs on PBS starting tomorrow. Mention national parks, and most people think of places like the ones Ken talked about, the Grand Canyon and the Great Smoky Mountains. But New York City's actually home to quite a few national park sites, including the Gateway National Recreation Area. Ranger David Taft has been working for the Park Service for the last 27 years. He's the go-to guy when it comes to Gateway, and he's a Brooklyn boy to boot. So how does someone born and raised in New York City come to appreciate and sometimes spend more than 16 hours a day showing people the wonders of this natural environment? We talked with Taft earlier this week, and here's what he had to say. I did grow up in Canarsie, uh, which is a part of Brooklyn, which at the time when I was growing up in the late 60s and early 70s still had a lot of vacant land, uh, old marshlands. But my brother and my friends and I would spend most days wandering around through these marshes and wetlands and abandoned fields collecting insects. I led a pretty privileged childhood without realizing it. Since that point, a lot of Canarsie has developed very differently than what it was when I was growing up. Uh, I think when I was about 13, I went on a western trip and uh, met my first park ranger when I was trying to capture a lizard in an Anasazi Kiva, one of the old archaeological sites. And this ranger was very patient and said that I really shouldn't be overturning rocks looking for lizards in archaeological sites, which now, when I think of how patient this ranger was, I'm very grateful. And later point, when I was in college, and I saw some openings in the park service, and I thought, well, what a perfect place. And so I put in for a position and wound up getting my first job, uh, which was the men's bathhouse attendant at Reese Park. Not a glorious job. It's been a few years since then, but I always remember that particular position because it got me to meet all the people that make up a park like Gateway, which is a very large urban national park. There are so many things about what I do that I love doing, and so every day is really a challenge. In many ways, it's fabulous to be able to work for the National Park Service. Uh, When I say that I'm out in the field, it really means I'm in the field or a marshland. Um, I consider that a tremendous privilege. It might be something like I'm locating plants that are still existent in New York City. It might be protecting animals like endangered species like the piping plover or certain plant species or other bird species that we have at the park. Um, It may very well be talking to a group of students who may never have seen the ocean. People are very surprised to find the kind of natural world that still exists in New York. I mean, there is almost no place on the planet Uh, But when people come out to, say, the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge or a place like Floyd Bennett Field or Breezy Point, 
Um, I think they are coming with the idea that they're going to see something natural. Uh, after all, they're coming for a bird walk or they're coming for a plant walk or they want to see the beach in some different way, maybe an evening walk along the shoreline. I can't say that I've ever had somebody who came on the walk who didn't go away with some idea that there are these places left now that you could see a high bush blueberry plant growing in the middle of New York City or that uh, that orchid still grows here or that there's a national park that preserves an open beach space of five or six miles that I could walk down one evening just for fun. There's a certain beauty about these natural spaces guaranteed if people put themselves into those places they come away with a different kind of understanding. It's one thing to read about it or abstractly muse over the fact that, yeah, it's nice that there's spaces left in New York City for people to walk around. But once they're in it and they see that it is so beautiful, I think they're really moved by it. David Taft is a national park ranger right here in New York City. With us now to talk more about the national park sites in the city is Marie Salerno. She's the co-founder and CEO of the National Parks of New York Harbor Conservancy. Hello, Marie. Hello, George. We're all familiar with the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, but how many other national park sites ring New York Harbor? Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island are a wonderful place to begin. Most people do not understand that beyond these two places, there are 20 other sites that comprise the National Parks of New York Harbor, a new entity that the National Park Service coined and named in what I refer to as a co-branding with New York Harbor and with their historic sites. Impossible to tell the story of these places without New York Harbor. What is the mission of the Conservancy? The mission of the Conservancy is to access and enliven these park places with a private partnership with the Park Service. We are the primary partner of the National Park Service. We have a contract with them which allows us to do programming, transportation, and other major projects that will make a very large difference in the lives of uh, Metro New Yorkers. I know not too far from the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island is, of course, Governor's Island, which has been getting a lot of attention. This is a national park site. 26 acres on Governor's Island is run by the National Park Service. We have two monuments on that island, Castle Williams, which is an 1812 fort, and Fort Jay. And the balance of the island is operated by the city-state called Guy Peck. Castle Williams is known as the Alcatraz of the East Coast. We only wish we could get it to be the Alcatraz of the East Coast. For those of you who have never been to Alcatraz, the Park Service does an, um, a very marvelous program out in California where you go to Alcatraz, and although you are only seeing empty cells, there's an audio tour that they do do, which which brings alive exactly what happened at that site. Castle Williams needs an enormous amount of work for us to get to the place that Alcatraz is at. And they've just received uh, stimulus money from uh, President Obama to remove some of the asbestos. So it's going to take a while for us to get to a place where we can interpret Castle Williams in, a, in the same kind of manner that other great national parks are interpreted across America. Castle Williams, Castle Clinton, even Statue of Liberty. If you notice the star that the statue pedestal is, is sits on, that was a fort called Fort Wood. Let me ask you this, Marie, because I know that I could catch a ferry from Battery Park and go to Ellis Island, also stop at the Statue of Liberty, but yet I can't then take the same ferry to get to Governor's Island or any other site, right? That is absolutely right. We realize that the identity of the nat- national parks is confusing. And then 
we realize that the parks are not connected physically. And that is a huge problem. People don't understand who are coming to the Statue of Liberty, who are primarily tourists, that there are other places in New York that are worthy of visiting. And so we need to do our job much better. There is a new and quite amazing national park site in lower Manhattan. That's the African Burial Ground. The African Burial Ground, uh, the new museum is opening up in the spring. The memorial itself is open, and I don't think that many New Yorkers have perhaps visited this site. It is absolutely as moving as places that you would go to to remember those who have um, given their lives for uh, a cause. And I call it hallowed ground. What most people don't understand about downtown is that it is a huge archaeological dig. And so many, so many blocks of the area around City Hall were places where the remains of of enslaved Africans were buried. What kinds of opportunities exist for kids to experience national park sites here in New York City? The Harbor Conservancy in this coming season is going to be focused on something very interesting and very different. We would like to make the harbor the classroom for many city and New Jersey students. The tours that we do on the water are terribly accessible in terms of the lessons, plans that connect young people to what is essential for their learning in uh, about the city and its history. Maurice Salerno, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Maurice Salerno is the co-founder and CEO of the National Parks of New York Harbor Conservancy. You can learn more at nyharborparks.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Seven U.S. presidents were born in log cabins. Theodore Roosevelt was not one of them. He was actually born in a New York City brownstone. Teddy Roosevelt's birthplace is now a National Historic Site. Mike Amato is a National Park Service ranger who gives tours of the house. He's on the phone with us this morning. Mike, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks, George. Glad to be here. Where exactly is the Teddy Roosevelt's birthplace? We're located in the Gramercy Park section of New York City, a little bit north of Union Square on uh, 20th Street, 28 East 20th, between Broadway and Park Avenue South. It's a historic brownstone. It's a replica of the actual site. What happened to the original? First, let me tell you, the house went through a transition. The family, Rosa was born October 27, 1858. He was one of four children born on the site. In 1872, the neighborhood underwent a commercial change, and it actually received the nickname of being called the Ladies' Mile. Have you ever heard that? No. The Ladies' Mile stretched from 8th Street to 23rd Street, and basically it was sort of Madison Avenue before it was Madison Avenue, a very prominent shopping district, first ladies, dignitaries, Stars would all shop here. You had the Lord and Taylor Building, which is still located right on the corner of 20th and Broadway. Macy's, Brooks Brothers, A.T. Stewart. So T.R. Sr., the president's father, decided to move the family to the country. Well, bear in mind, the country in 1872 was um, 57th Street and 5th Avenue in Upper Manhattan. So the family relocates, and they travel through for a whole year while their larger mansion is being built. The family eventually sells the home on 20th Street, and over the years, the house transferred hands. 1916 rolls around. The gentleman that owned it contacts former President Theodore Roosevelt, who was living in Oyster Bay, Long Island, at Sagmore Hill, which is also another site administered by the National Park Service. And Roosevelt really has no interest in buying back his boyhood home. On top of that, historic preservation, I don't think, was a priority in New York in 1916. So this whole idea we have of people chaining themselves to the buildings 
saying, please spare Teddy's house or TR's house, wasn't happening. So the house was demolished in 1916. And was something built in that spot? A two-story, pretty much a two-story commercial building was put up there. Keep in mind, though, Roosevelt lived right next door to his Uncle Robert. So Uncle Robert's home was still standing throughout this time. So after Roosevelt passes in 1919, this movement is underway, spearheaded by his two sisters, Anna, Corinne, his second wife, Edith, his niece, Eleanor, his daughter, Alice. And the movement is to create a tribute to honor TR. So they basically have the idea of rebuilding his boyhood home. Using Uncle Robert's as a model, they commission a female architect, a woman by the name of Deity Pope, to reconstruct the birthplace, and that's exactly what she did, tearing down Roberts and rebuilding the site from the ground floor up. And uh, we opened on what would have been his 65th birthday, October 27, 1923. Didn't they also bring back some of the furniture that was in the original home? 60% of the furniture is original to the Roosevelt family, correct. I understand the dining room once had a certain type of chair, one that would scratch the bare legs of a young Teddy Roosevelt? Yes, all the furniture in the dining room and in the library was stuffed with horsehair. And horsehair was used in the 19th century for the fact that it was very durable, but it was very coarse and it used to irritate TR's uh, asthma. It didn't help with the fact that straw pants was in style for young boys. So Roosevelt Sr. got tired of his son complaining and actually purchased his own chair which was a red velour tassel chair that T.R. Uh, took quite a liking to as a child. And is that chair in the house today? Oh, absolutely. That chair is on display in the library. You mentioned Teddy Roosevelt's asthma. He was a pretty sickly kid. He had asthma and other ailments as well. It's one of the things I think people find most surprising when they visit the site and they tour the house to find out, you know, when you think of Theodore Roosevelt, you tend to associate him as this kind of barrel-chested, robust man, you know, an advocate of the strenuous life. And then you find out he's really this sickly, frail child who really had to build himself up and um, exercise. Didn't the house have an outdoor gymnasium? His father extended the house, correct, to build a little porch area. Methods doctors prescribed for his dad for asthma initially were to let him drink hot black coffee, which folks say caffeine helps. Other methods were to let him inhale cigar smoke, which you can imagine cigar smoke for asthma wasn't the best remedy. So T.R. Sr. takes it upon himself to kind of knock out this bedroom and build this open-air porch which was filled with all sorts of uh, 19th century gymnastic equipment, weightlifting equipment, exercise equipment. And I really think that's where sort of that spirit of the strenuous life really uh, was born, right here on the outdoor porch with TR working out vigorously. Was that area reconstructed as well? The porch area is there, but it doesn't have quite the same feel. You know, urbanization has settled in, so rather than looking on a nice little courtyard or garden, it looks onto a nice concrete building. <laughs> Did Teddy Roosevelt spend a lot of time at the home because he was a pretty sick kid? He did spend a lot of time. His social interaction was very limited because of his illness. So um, he really picked up other activities and interests such as, uh, you know, avid reader, writer. You know, he's fascinated by adventure stories, uh, westerns, military history. Just to foreshadow, as we all know, T.R. as an adult sort of lived his own adventure stories, whether it had been going out to North Dakota, traveling down to Africa, or, you know, exploring the River of Doubt in Brazil. A lot of his uh, interests, I think, were really spearheaded by the fact that he was so sickly and so confined to this house as a child. I understand that Teddy Roosevelt had what he called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History in that home. The Roosevelt Museum of Natural History is something fascinating because when most people think of the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City, they tend to think of TR because of the huge statue outside. 
and all the quotes located in the rotunda. But um, the spirit for that museum was actually started also here at the birthplace. He was into taxidermy. So here he is at 12 years old, stuffing birds and uh, storing them in the icebox until the chambermaid revolted to T.R.'s parents, and he was forced to relocate his collection to an upstairs hallway. So he did have a museum up on the fourth floor, which was called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. And to connect that to his dad, his dad was a major philanthropist, and his father was actually the gentleman who started the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City and donated the land the museum sits upon today. Do you have anything from that early collection at the house today? We do have. We have two of his specimens. We have a purple finch and we have a starling. They were both um, TR, some of TR specimens done in 1872, and they're on display in the upstairs gallery of the home, which is known as the Lion's Room. You know, for obvious reasons, once visitors visit it, you'll see why. Why? Give us a clue. Well, Ralph sits there, our, our lion. Our, a lion that he brought back from Africa greets people as soon as they walk into the room. How long have you been working at the Teddy Roosevelt birthplace? I've been going on, it's going to go on my uh, 14th year for the, at the birthplace. How many visitors a year come through the Teddy Roosevelt birthplace? We get about 14,000. And are they largely out-of-towners, or do native New Yorkers also come by? I would say we get those New Yorkers walking down the block that lived here their whole life and didn't know Theodore Roosevelt was a New Yorker. I think that's also another surprising factor, is that he is a New Yorker, because we constantly associate him with Yellowstone or Grand Canyon, or he's always out west, you know, in photographs. So you don't really think of TR in New York City, but he was a city kid. And another thing which is surprising is that, you know, we... At the birthplace, try not to call him Teddy. You know, believe it or not, he hated that name. Wasn't his nickname as a kid T-D-T-E-E-D-I-E? It was. It was T.D. T.D. was a child. All the children had various nicknames. T.D. was Roosevelt. Uh, but it, the average, you know, everyone seems to think of, um, of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But uh, Teddy was actually a private nickname from his first wife. So if you were a friend of his, you wouldn't have called him Teddy. I've noticed that you refer to him as T.R. We do. I think we, we do. Maybe for the simple fact of... Uh, being a, a, you know, speaking about him all day and finding a certain level of comfort. We do call him TR quite a bit around here. All right, Mike Amato, thank you so much for your time. Right, thank you so much, George. Have a great day. Mike Amato is a National Park Service ranger at the Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace at 28 East 20th Street in Manhattan. More information is online at nps.gov THRB. Besides maintaining national parks and landmarks, the Park Service is also in the business of restoring them. Cityscape's Ellen Burke explains why the Park Service is responsible for lots of sawing, hammering, and pulley work going on in Upper Manhattan. The Park Service acquired founding father Alexander Hamilton's Harlem home in the 1960s and planned to move the house, known as the Grange, to a site where it could be restored. The house finally made that move last year when the Grange was jacked 30 feet in the air, brought around the corner of Convent Ave and 141st Street, and brought to a rest in St. Nicholas Park. The Park Service's Mindy Rambo says in its new spot, the Grange looks right at home. One of the neat things about this particular corner of St. Nicholas Park is that this acre of ground that it sits on actually was part of Hamilton's original estate. So the house has never left the property that Hamilton bought. It's just shifted around on it a couple of times. But besides putting the Grange in a more pastoral setting, the Park Service is restoring the building to eventually reopen it to the public. That means putting in new equipment while preserving as much of the house as possible. Project Supervisor Mike Savageau works with Loomis Construction, which specializes in historic restoration. He says the project is constantly in flux as the contractors find more evidence of what the house used to look like. Look above you. That's the original ceiling. 
we were challenged with moving this building and not destroying the ceiling any more than what was already destroyed by previous work. To keep things like that ceiling in place, Mike says the workers get creative, doing things like putting the sprinkler system through the walls and adding pipes in places that have already been changed since the building's construction in 1802. But besides filling me in about the restoration, Mike and Mindy get really enthusiastic about Hamilton, telling me about his struggle to go from immigrant to George Washington's right-hand man. Mike says he became interested in Hamilton while working on the house. In the nature of being at any particular site from the beginning to the end, you can't help but learn about what's going on. Um, I was horrible in history in school. I absolutely hated it. It was boring. If they gave me history like this, I would have been so excited. I was like, probably would have been a history major. The Grange has gone through a lot of changes in the past year, but it still needs a lot of work. Its front porch and majestic entrance are still missing, and Mike says work gets slowed down by constant new discoveries. But Mindy says when the restoration's finished, visitors will get a chance to see the Grange in its 19th century grandeur. When it was on Convent Avenue, it was dwarfed by the buildings around it, and so it made it hard to understand how Alexander Hamilton saw the house. And now that we've been able to put the piazzas back on in their proper location, and we're going to be able to have the grand front entrance that he originally envisioned, it feels like the house has taken a deep breath and it expanded itself back out to its original size. Mindy says the Hamilton Grange isn't well known outside its Harlem neighborhood, appropriately known as Hamilton Heights. But the Park Service hopes to be ushering new visitors through its doors by next year. For Cityscape, I'm Ellen Burke. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend and go out and enjoy the national parks.